ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Welcome. This is Dr. Michael Egner. I'm a professor of neurosurgery uh, in uh, Stony Brook, New York, and I have been teaching and doing research and practicing neurosurgery for about 40 years. And I'm a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. I have the great pleasure today to have with me Howard Klicksman. Dr. Klicksman has written a wonderful book uh, called Your Design Body. And I'd like to ask Dr. Klicksman to tell us a bit about himself and a bit about his book. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, it's great to be here. I've been a physician for over 40 years, uh, trained in the University of Toronto. I'm a general practitioner, and I had an office and hospital practice for about a little over 20 years. But for the last 20 years or so now, I'm, I've been a hospice doctor. Really, actually, the last five or six years, I, I seek out and try to find patients that may be recoverable in hospice. So that, you know, I try to get them better if I can. I have a specialty in heart failure and fluid overload that I've been able to solve these people's problems sometimes. So that's, that's sort of what I do. And uh, the book that we have, though, it's called uh, me and Steve Loftman, the engineer. It's called uh, Your Design Body. And basically, it's about you and everyone else who has a body. Basically, uh, looks at all the uh, organ systems of the body and uh, explains how they work and the fact that you need this built-in engineering uh, for them to work properly. And then finally, we sort of look at causation, like, you know, where did all this come from? What is it about the body that impresses you as being the product of design? Well, actually, maybe we can just go through the perspectives that we take in this book is basically the first perspective is a medical perspective, where we lay out the data of how the body works. So, and that medical perspective is really looking at control mechanisms, basically the Goldilocks principle in action because if any one of these things aren't working properly, you're dead. So, for example, uh, there's multiple chemical parameters in the body, and the ones that we look at, uh, some of them in the book are, you know, having enough oxygen or carbon dioxide, water, sugar, salt. Uh, because if if any of these are out of whack, you know, you're dead. And then we also look at physiological parameters such as the blood pressure, a heart rate, respiration, and and sort of temperature. And if any of them are out of whack, then you're dead. And then we also look at dynamic capacities such as regional blood flow and clotting and immunity. So if they're not working well, I think you've got the point. In addition to that, we we take a look at uh, special senses like uh, vision and hearing and balance and movement. And then finally, uh, reproduction and development going right from the zygote to the newborn to see you know what, what's going on there. And then the next perspective from there, taking all that into account, we then ask ourselves, well, you know, how do, how do you make all this happen, right? You know, there's a lot of hard problems you have to solve. You've got to solve the problem of controlling oxygen, controlling carbon dioxide, you know, controlling blood pressure, etc. And it really comes down to the answer and the engineering perspective is that you need what's called coherent interdependent systems. And what that means is that basically it's a system that has multiple parts that are assembled properly and work together to perform a function that each part cannot accomplish. Of course, you know, the fact that you have several parts makes it, quote unquote, irreducibly complex. But beyond that, the, the parts have to have proper material specifications. Uh, everything has to work properly, fast enough. Then you have to have fine tuning. The numbers have to stay within certain ranges. Uh, and then so finally, in the engineering part of the book, uh, we look at how do you design, build, launch, maintain, and reproduce coherent interdependent systems. And that's the engineering part that Steve covers. And after we take that, you know, look at the medical and the uh, 
engineering perspectives that we sort of look at causation. You know, where did all this these engineering marvels come from? Okay, and um, we're hoping that when people read this book, that at the end of the day, they're going to sort of say, okay, well, every time they see any organism or anything that's explained to them about any functional system, organ, uh, any in, in any uh, living form, that they're going to ask themselves, well, how does that work? How would I build that from the ground up? So, you know, we're hoping that, you know, this is just sort of just an overview, but, you know, if you buy the book, then you'll be able to see what we talk about there. It's a very powerful message there, we think. What are some examples um, of this, what appears to be almost an orchestration? I mean, this is almost like an orchestra playing beautiful music. What are some of the examples that are the most striking that you write about in your book? Well, um, yeah, I think... I think the where we begin, uh, you know, we, you know, when I started writing about this, uh, we sort of take a, a, a an approach uh, instead of just looking at the organ systems just willy nilly. We sort of we look at sort of chemicals. So, so the most important chemical that we all need is oxygen. I think everyone understands that. You know, we can only live a, f- a few minutes without ox- without a new supply of oxygen, whereas we can live days without water and uh, you know weeks without new, new supply of food. So oxygen becomes, you know, the, the key factor. And of course, that's, of course, why cardiopulmonary arrest, you know, the heart and the lungs stopping, breathing stopping at the same time or stopping at the same time or, or one or right after the other are, are the usual causes of death. So, so the, whole, the whole body is, is connected up and set up to control this and to prevent your heart from stopping and your breathing from stopping. Uh, that's how it says. So, so for example, uh, if you, uh, one example is if, you know, you hold your breath, and you'll notice within a few seconds you've you got to take a breath, right? You know, like so, what is it that's going on? And you've got you've got sensors, you've got you know, oxygen and carbon dioxide sensors in the main arteries heading up to your brain, and also a carbon dioxide sensor inside your brain, and they're detecting the oxygen carbon dioxide levels. So when you hold your breath, all your cells are still needing energy. Cellular respiration is going on. They're still working hard to stay alive. And so if you hold your breath and the oxygen starts to drop, carbon dioxide starts to rise, and the respiratory center in the brain sort of detects this and sends you a message that says, hey, you better start taking a breath. Of course, we can hold our breath. But then, as you notice, the longer you wait, the, 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 the more urgent that message becomes. And then finally, you take a breath. So in doing that, the respiratory center sends a message to your lungs. You know, the muscles of respiration tells you to take a breath. The air comes in into your lungs and then into your bloodstream, and then the those oxygen and carbon dioxide levels go back to normal and, you know, you don't feel like breathing for a few seconds and then it starts over again. So there's a, a, a classic example of, of how things are controlled in the body. What are the traditional explanations in biological science for how this really amazing orchestration of body functions came about? How do most scientists explain all of this? It's, 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 well, it's, it's a remarkable system. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the classic, especially with respect to what we're talking about right now, uh, the classic example would be that uh, you know you had fish that had gills. That's how they were getting their oxygen in the in the in the water, right? And then they came on land and became mammals or, or reptiles and started breathing with lungs. And uh, basically, that's what's happened. There's no, we don't have any information with respect to how those organ systems developed, uh, the control mechanisms involved. I mean, it's a totally different system. They're sort of just stating the obvious. It's not really explaining anything. But I'll I'll give you an example, though. This is probably what really started me to write about this, is that 
many years ago, I was talking to a gentleman, and he, and he mentioned offhand that his he had a couple of relatives that were physical anthropologists, and they, as he put it, they sort of uh, you know they dig up human bones to help figure out human evolution. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, well, that, you know, you got to be kidding me. I mean, we're looking at just a gross anatomy uh, or just looking at bones to figure out how the body works or where it came from. Because, you know, when you look at bones, every doctor knows that you, know, you got to consider all these different cells that are working in, in, you know, in the bone to, to form bone. The fact that the body has to control the calcium level in the body. And, and it, for that, it, it basically, one of the ways it does that is the parathyroid hormone from the parathyroid glands to control calcium and tells the bone to release some or make a little more bone and take it out of, the, out of the bloodstream. And so why I'm bringing this up is because when I've written about this, I sort of looked online and I said, well, how do, how do they say that, you know, calcium control was, you know, evolved? And in order to have control of the calcium, the parathyroid gland cells, they all they have calcium sensors or receptors. They're able to de actually detect the calcium level in the bloodstream. And in response to that, if the calcium goes low, it sends out parathyroid hormone. And if it goes up, then it reduces the parathyroid hormone you know, that it sends out. And then that goes to the bone and it has to attach to receptor in the bone to have its effect. If you look it up online with respect to how, how this gets explained, they'll, they'll go into great detail of how the receptor, calcium receptor, is how it's all connected up. They'll look at the molecular structure and compare it with other organisms, et cetera, and say, show how that evolved. And then they'll look at parathyroid hormone and compare that with other animals. And then they'll look at the parathormone receptor, okay, and they'll look at, look at that, compare that. But they'll always isolate them. They'll never put the three together and say, you know, well, by the way, for this to work, all three of these have to be in, in place, right? And then it has to stay within the right range, the calcium level eight and a half to 10 milligrams per deciliter. Then you have to take into account, okay, when the calcium goes up, how much parathyroid hormone should they, should be sent out? How effective is it? How effective is it in the target tissue of the receptor? How long does it last? It's half-life. It, you know, it's going to get broken down by enzymes. So although none of that, none of that is explained. They just basically look at each part in isolation and never really put it together as a system of function which needs to be fine-tuned. And so this, this is what started me to, to write about this because I thought, well, people need to know this. You know, need to understand uh, how the body controls things. And, uh, and so it was, it was this story of physical anthropologists, and they still do it, looking at, simply looking at bones and trying to decide where, you know, the origin of human life uh, without looking at the cytology, the physiology, the molecular structures, et cetera. So that's why I found it wanting in my, in my mind. Yeah, the the uh, to have a living organism, as as you pointed out, you need all of these interlocking systems to be functioning not only on their own, but functioning in a coordinated way with each other. And it's awfully difficult to explain the evolution of these systems without asserting some kind of intelligence, some kind of design that pulls all of this together and makes it work. Are there analogs to this kind of uh, orchestration of parts in, for example, in engineering? Um, I, I'm, I'm the medical person, so I'm not sure I can answer that for <laughs> okay. Sorry. Well, because, right, yeah. because, but, but it, it seems to me that the kind of explanation that one would find most plausible about how these things work together is more along the lines of an engineering project than along the lines of uh, Darwinian natural selection acting on random variation. It very much seems like a really engineered system. 
Well, I think the thing the thing I left out of all this is the whole point is that it has to be functional every step along the way because if this is developing from something else, okay, it has to be alive to keep reproducing, all right? So the whole point about what I just mentioned about calcium control or blood pressure control or oxygen or carbon dioxide control, et cetera, they all have at least three parts, never mind the fine tuning and the material specifications, but you've got three parts that all have to be in place. And the question is, which one came first? They all have to be in place at the same time for it to function and then to be able to live and reproduce. This is, this is totally being missed uh, in the discussion. And this is the reason why you know, I started writing years ago and then I realized that it would, you know, sort of irreducible complexity. The most of the audience is probably aware of this term from Michael Behe's book uh, *Darwin's Black Box*, which he talks about the iconic uh, mouse trap. And what I noticed after I was writing these things, I was—that's what really started me writing about it. Cause I was just using the uh, how the various organ systems work, how you control various things using the same thinking. But if you think about the mouse trap, it's got you know five parts. It's sort of you know, it's, it's got the base and it's got the, the um, hold down bar and it's got a spring and a, and a catch and a hammer. Uh, but the question is, even if you explain where all that come from, and that is very important to explain where those parts came from. But the thing is, well, is that enough? I mean, what if, what if the base instead of solid wood is just, you know, cheap plastic and breaks for you very easily? You know, what if the hammer instead of being solid iron is tinfoil? Okay. So the whole point about it is that Although it's irreducibly complex, what we talk about in the book is basically irreducible complexity on steroids, because it's not only that the parts have to be there, but the material specifications, what they're made of, how they, how fast they work, you know, how and 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 everything working exactly in fine tuning to keep numbers within this certain range. I think that's when Steve Lofman was reading some of the stuff I had written on Evolution News, and he saw he basically said to me, Howard, you're you, you think you're writing about medicine, and you are, but you also didn't know that you've been writing about engineering. Uh, and of course, because I'm not an engineer, so he recognized all these things, and that's what brought us together to start writing the book a few years ago. What you've been describing, Howard, uh, is the dependence of each individual part of this amazingly complex orchestrated system on the functioning of the system as as a whole. And it seems very difficult to see how the system could have developed piecemeal. Uh, and Darwin noted this problem in uh, Origin of Species, in which he, he admitted that it kind of boggled the mind to imagine a, a, a beautifully organized and apparently designed thing like the eye as having come from a, a, a disconnected bunch of heritable mutations and, and, and kind of random natural selection. So even Darwin saw that there was a problem with this, with trying to explain this beautiful orchestration of physiology without invoking design of some sort. And um, Mike Behe reiterated that problem with, with, with his now famous concept of irreducible complexity. And I think uh, you and, and, and Steve Lofman are pointing out an even deeper level of irreducible complexity uh, in the orchestration of various body systems. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly. I agree with you. Yes, that's what we've that's what we've been doing. I'm trying to remember the quote, but I think I think Darwin. I think referring to the eye, but but basically his the way to falsify his theory of evolution was I think he said if there was one system that could be found that could not have developed once gradually one step at a time, then his right. his theory would fall apart. And what we say in the book is, is there isn't even one system that 
there's not that all the systems can do it his way and there's just one that doesn't work. There isn't one system that works his way. You know, that's a, that's a marvelous point. And it's, it's the same thing that I've seen in 40 years of medical practice and of, and of teaching young doctors and students is that when you look at, for example, the human body, there's, there's nothing in it that looks like it came about by just unintelligent natural selection. Everything we deal with, even what appear to be the simplest things, are amazingly and beautifully designed. And I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. So I, I just wanted to thank Howard for joining us. And uh, his book with Steve Laufman is called Your Design Body. You can find it on the web at yourdesignedbody.com. And Howard, I thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.